Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up into the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows. I know how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man, I will boast, but I, on my own behalf, I will not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this so that no one will credit me for more than he sees in me or hears in me. Let's pray one more time. Father, we do thank you uh, for the privilege of being in your house, being among your people. There is simply nowhere else I want to be than in your church, a glorious assembly, which is just a prelude. It's just a, it's just a, a picture, a future picture of what is to come, the assembly that will never end the church of the firstborn, and where glorious things happen. Well, glorious things are happening here today, and we're thankful, Lord, that we have a future heavenly reality to look forward to. We ask, Lord, that you would bless us as we look at your word, bless your people, and increase our knowledge and discernment. Give us wisdom as we study this glorious passage of Scripture and we just pray, Lord, for transformation in our own heart, in our own minds, in our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, uh, this is a uh, new chapter and a whole new set of teachings and themes and ideas that Paul is going to introduce. However, there is a common thread weaving this whole a chapter together with the previous chapter, and that is the whole concept of boasting. That word, kaukaamai, to boast. When Paul uses that word throughout these chapters, he's stringing together an argument. And that argument is that his type of boasting is not anything like the boasting of the false teachers. When he boasted, he boasted in the Lord. That's the big qualifier. That's the way he ends the chapter in chapter 10. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And there was a lot of boasting going on, but it wasn't boasting that was godly. It wasn't boasting that was selfless and meek and humble like Paul. It was boasting in self-accolades, self-promotion, self-seeking. To shorten it up, boasting in self. But Paul had a different kind of boasting. His boasting was focused on his weakness, as we're going to go on to see. He boasts in these chapters for a whole myriad of reasons. He will boast in order to show what true, mature ministry looks like. He's going to boast in order to show the limitations of one's ministry and how not to boast beyond the measure that God has given to everyone. He boasts in order to show the true focus of his ministry, the gospel. He boasts 
to set himself apart from the false teachers, as he did in chapter 10, verse 8, and other places. He boasts in order to beat the false teachers in their own game of boasting in themselves. He boasts to prove his love for the church and his devotion to Christ. And then lastly here, he's going to boast in supernatural phenomenon. And the reason why he does that here is to show that his apostleship is that much greater, that much farther superior to the, uh, the false apostleship of the false teachers. Paul is going to establish that the type of experience that they're boasting at, he can beat them at that experience as well. His supernatural experiences are superlative to anything that the false teachers were doing. And so this whole comparison goes all the way back to chapter 11, verse 23, when they say, are they servants of Christ? These men that were trying to sort of assert themselves as Christ's servants, Christ's apostles, Christ's teachers, Christ's ambassadors. And Paul says, I speak as if I am insane. I more so. That comparison, more so. I more so is what's grounding this whole passage together. It is showing the contrast, and it is showing the superiority of his apostleship to the false teachers. As Paul will go on to say, his superiority is seen in what he calls in verse 7, the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he received. Revelation that he's going to talk about in this text. For Paul... The experience recounted here is part of this overall arching testimony that his, apost his, his apostolic ministry was true, that it was genuine, and that it was followed, therefore, with true signs and wonders. Look down at verse 12 here in this chapter. He states that very thing. As part of a true apostle, there's true signs, true wonders. He says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance, by signs and wonders and miracles. That's amazing. That part of being a true apostle and the fact that the Corinthians had been in the presence of a true ministry meant that they saw true miracles, true signs happening among them. And they knew that this set Paul apart. The amazing thing about all of this is that it proves that his apostolic ministry is grounded and rooted in the supernatural. That's amazing. That's why when people today claim to be apostles, I don't even know how they can claim such a foolish thing. At least not in the sense of the uh, uh, 12 apostles of the Lord and Paul. Because they're not able to do signs and wonders today. No matter what these false apostles are saying. They're not able to do the signs of an apostle, raising people from the dead, healing people on the spot remarkably, miraculously, causing limbs to grow back fully in front of people, vindicated, validated, verifiable miracles, unquestionable uh, miracles. Today, Many faith healers who claim to have healed people and done miracles in the name of God always rely on third-party witnesses. It always seems to be, oh, we know a guy who did such and such and such and such. I know a minister, a faith teacher that was over in Africa, and they did such and such and such and such. 
but it's never validated. What Paul is saying here in verse 12 is that the signs of his apostleship were axiomatic, self-evident, self-attesting, needing no further verification. I mean, when Peter heals the layman at the temple and his, his, his whole limb grows back, there's no way to disprove that, especially when he's been laying there his whole life. And so Paul here is just going to set himself apart. He's going to show that his ministry is superior to the apostles before he was arguing in terms of his sacrifice, before he was arguing in terms of the things that he suffered in serving Christ's church. But now he's, he's swinging, he's shifting over to the supernatural. So let's look first at Paul's supernatural ability This is all part of Paul's, what we could call Paul's humble ecstasies. Humble ecstasies. First, therefore, it's his ability. Look at verse 1. He says, boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. So that right there means that Paul was able, as he's going to show us, to delve into supernatural visions and supernatural things like revelations of the Lord. The first thing he says, however, is he makes this sort of this, this, this qualifier. Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. You see that? What that does is that alerts us to the fact that this, this up. Uh, this vein of thought that Paul is pursuing is really not his, at the bottom of his heart. That's not really what he wants to do if he had it his way. Wish that he did not have to engage in the divulging the details of his revelations. But in order to close the mouth of the false teachers, he has to give us a true apostolic vision. Because for Paul, true ministry is preaching the Word. True ministry is God-centered, not man-centered. It's not like Paul was going church to church and saying, okay, everybody here, great. Let me begin to tell you about the experiences that I had this week. No, Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, his goal in ministry was to train and to teach every man, instructing every man, presenting every man mature in Christ. That's the goal. The goal is not to get whipped up and caught up in an emotional frenzy about some ecstatic experience that he had. That's not what he wanted. For him, it was all about preaching the Word of God. Paul was God-centered, not man-centered, and he knew this would only detract from his true goal. The goal that he mentions, for example, in 2 Corinthians 4-5, For we do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus as Lord. Ourselves, we are your bondservants for Jesus' sake. 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified. And in 1 Corinthians 2.2, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ crucified. That must be the banner over all preaching ministry, overall biblical church ministry. It must be that the leaders, the pastors, the preaching ministry is determined that above all, we are here to preach Christ crucified. 
That means Christ is the center. Christ is the focus. Everything comes back to Christ. Every message, yes. I don't care what part of the Bible you're preaching. I don't care if you're in Leviticus or you're in Numbers or you're in the Song of Songs, if you're in the Psalms, if you're in the Proverbs. I don't care where you're at. You've got to bring it home to Jesus. Always. It was Spurgeon who said, just like there is a road all over Europe, all over, going back to London, so to speak, he says, he says I will find my way back to Christ. doesn't matter where I'm at. Exegetically, expositionally, everything must come back to a Christ-centered focus. And so Paul, not uh, afraid to go into visions and dreams and, and, and ecstatic experience, revelations, but that was not the whole goal. That wasn't the purpose. And some churches, and you're already thinking in your mind, there are some people, some churches, some ministries that that's all they focus on is bringing the prophet in to tell you the dream he had or to tell you the vision that he had or to give you some new revelation. That is not Paul's goal in ministry. Therefore, Paul says, yes, it is necessary, but he does not want to assert himself in this way. Nevertheless, because he is able to do it and because necessity is placed upon him, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now, what does he mean, of the Lord? Well, there's two ways, there's two ways to interpret that. It's a genitive case, Lord. So it's either about the Lord or from the Lord, meaning it came from God to him came from God to him. And I think that latter one is true, specifically because in the, in the vision, paradise is the focus, not the Lord. It's not that he's describing Jesus, and I think there, kurios does refer to Jesus Christ instead of just referring to God in general, but to Jesus Christ specifically. That's who he's talking about. So it, come, it came from Christ to him. It was granted to him. By the Lord. He gave him the ability to do this. See, this is, where, this is where the claims that you hear today begin to have a very serious implication. When you begin to imply that you have had a vision or a dream or a revelation and that it came from the Lord, you are saying something on an apostolic level. Something like this, something miraculous like this. And uh, we'll get more into our contemporary situation in a moment. But that's Paul's supernatural ability. Next is Paul's inexpressible vision. Look at, look, let, which is just, let's focus on the vision itself, verses 2 to 4. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know. God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. God knows. He was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. So, though Paul spoke of visions and revelations, plural, here he's just giving us one, one vision to focus on. But it does suggest that Paul, if he wanted to, he probably could have just gone on and on about all sorts of visions and revelations that he had received from the Lord. But he gives us different aspects now in this 
inexpressible vision. And I want to point out four things that he points out. Number one, the timing of the vision. He says that this took place 14 years ago, which is just remarkable to me that Paul here is pointing that far back. Well, these 14 years ago, if you do the math and when this happened and when this transpired in Paul's life, it took place between in, in what uh, scholars call Paul's silent years. Those are the years that he went off uh, to Troas, and before he shows up again uh, in, in, in Acts chapter 13 for his first missionary journey. Somewhere in between there, where we don't really have a lot of information on what's going on with Paul, this vision transpired. This vision transpired. Now, the amazing thing, too, is that for Paul, he says that he will boast on behalf of such a man. And for him, it's more important to boast about a man in Christ than a man who's having visions and dreams. That's the, obviously, that's the most important thing for him. But here, he feels the need to speak almost in the third person about his personal experience. And so if there's any gray area for any of you, is he talking about somebody else? Well, I think verse 7 is pretty conclusive, that the revelations, the visions that he's talking about, are describing his personal experience spoken in the third person. And the, the language is rather technical, and, and it's, it's sort of difficult, but that is the majority position, and I think that's correct. I think he's describing himself in a manner that shows his true heart. A man, he says, who was in body or out of body, he doesn't know. God knows. That's who he's describing. We'll get to that in a minute. Let me just point out one last thing in terms of the timing of the vision. The vision was timely in Paul's life. It wasn't a random event, and that's what I want to focus on. The fact that God gave Paul this revelation at a critical moment in his life. It wasn't like Paul was just seeking for an experience. It wasn't like Paul was looking for an experience. It wasn't like, you know what, let's go to the charismatic church. Maybe I'll get an experience there. No, this experience happened in conjunction to, to God's redemptive plan. It came at a critical moment. Now think about it. Does God have a history of doing this? Or does God just give people visions and dreams and revelations randomly for no reason? Of course not. Going all the way back to the beginning, you remember that God gave Abraham a vision right when he was instituting that covenant with him. He gives Daniel a vision when he's in a Babylonian exile. He gives Peter a vision when the Gentiles are being included. He gives Mary a vision during the incarnation. He gives Paul a vision during his ministry calling. And so God is giving visions, dreams, revelations at critical moments in redemptive history. They are not random. They are not sporadic. They are not meaningless. They are meaningful, and they all have a part. They always have some purpose to serve in God's plan. But secondly, is not just the timing of it, but also the testimony of it. Paul's testimony, as with everything else in his ministry, ultimately is validated by God. God is the, the one that will put his stamp of approval on the details of this vision. If you notice, Paul, it's almost like Paul seems to not even know the exact nature of the experience. He says, in the body, I do not know. Out of the body, I do not know. God knows. That's safe. <laughs> okay, that's safe for Paul to say that. 
Don't try to speculate. Just let the Lord sort it out. Paul is, saying, Paul is unwilling to speculate. And isn't it amazing that here's an apostle who is given a vision from the Lord himself, and yet there are aspects of the vision he doesn't even know exactly what happened. And yet people today want to go into detailed accounts of what happened in their visions. It's just amazing. Twice Paul stresses the mysterious nature of this metaphysical experience to try to stress, look, there was some ambiguity here. I don't know if I was in the body or out of the body. I don't know if his body had left, you know, his body and his soul were temporarily separated or if he was raptured temporarily like Enoch into heaven. He doesn't know for sure either. But God knows. And Paul is very comfortable with leaving the details to God. Now, the location of the vision. Paul gives two descriptions as to the location of this vision. The first is heavenly. The second one is paradisical. The first one deals with the third heaven, that phrase, the third heaven. And I do believe that what that means is not the atmosphere, not the, the, the galactic sphere with all the galaxies, but the realm where God is. And the other term is that he was caught up into paradise. And although these are grammatically probably appositional, listen, meaning they are put on par with each other. That's what that means. They are in a grammatical relationship that means they refer to the same thing. Third heaven, paradise, same thing. Same overall reality. Same overall sphere. Same overall dimension. Same overall realm. That's where he was. The third heaven, if, if there is any difference, let's say there's a difference here, then maybe it's just a difference for emphasis. Maybe the third heaven gives us the general sphere of where he's at while paradise serves to give us the specifics of the experience. From Paul's vision, we learn the simple yet profound truth that heaven is paradise and that paradise is where heaven is. You guys, we are headed for paradise. Hawaii is not paradise. The Bahamas are not paradise. You get mugged in those countries. <laughs> Mumbai, you know, you know, you travel the world. It's not paradise. You're in a fallen, sinful world still. It's not paradise, true paradise, until you're in heaven. Another reason why it's not paradise is because your vacation always ends. You always got to come back to reality, right? And sometimes you come back from vacation needing a vacation from your vacation because you're tired of paradise in this world. But paradise is where God is. As a matter of fact, heaven is is called the paradise of God. And the word paradise can be translated garden. So that leads us back to the most famous garden that you know of and that I know of, the Garden of Eden. So what was the Garden of Eden? Paradise. It was a picture of paradise. It was a 
It was an analogy to real paradise. The earthly was a pattern of the heavenly. And in heaven, guess what? There is a river. There is a tree of life that we might eat of freely. Revelation chapter 2, verse 7 says the paradise of God. That's, that's real paradise. That's the paradise I want to go to. Why is it paradise? Well, so many reasons why heaven is paradise. Number one, heaven is paradise because that is where God is. Isaiah 66, 1. Because that is where we will see Jesus face to face. Revelation 22, verse 4. Because it is a sinless place where nothing abominable or filthy or wicked will ever go in. It is paradise because it is a righteous place where righteousness dwells. Because it is a place where there will be no death. The enemy will be done away with in paradise. Because it is a place where all things will be made new. And you know how much we love new things, right? I just got a new TV. I love it. You probably got a new smartphone or tablet recently. You love it, right? And they can't wait to six months later give you something new. So that in six months, your new phone is now obsolete. And now you're in the old crowd and you can't wait to get in the new crowd. We love new things, new homes, new cars, new gadgets. We love things that are new. Well, God is going to bring in a new heavens and a new earth. He'll make everything new. I can't even think of it. And I think at that point, Paul would say, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Neither could I. Therefore, I wouldn't even speak of it. Heaven is a place where God will have eternal pleasure in store for his people. And if eternal pleasure, then eternal joy. That means your joy will never end. Will never end. Happiness in this world is oftentimes conditional on our situations, right? But happiness in heaven is conditioned upon the reality that God will forever be giving us eternal pleasure. So your capacity to enjoy that pleasure must result in an eternal joy, unending, ever-increasing, I believe. We can't think of it. I don't think our mind can even grasp it. An infinite, almighty being... Think of the joy that temporal, tr transient beings like human beings give you. Lots of joy. Your children can give you a lot of joy. Your spouse can give you a lot of joy, most of the time. <laughs> but God, who is infinite and almighty and all-powerful, can give you what kind of joy? Infinite joy. Infinite pleasure. Pleasure beyond your wildest dreams. Pleasure that if you didn't have a new body, you couldn't even experience. You would probably explode. And that pleasure would be unending, ever increasing, ever enlarging, going on forever, streaming forth out of the heart and out of the being of God, unending. Therefore, your joy will be unending. Paradise, paradise, paradise. 
Not only that, but there was also not just the location of the vision, the testimony of the vision, but also the limitation of the vision. The vision was limited in that Paul was not allowed to express the vivid nature of what he saw. He said these were inexpressible words that he heard, things that he saw and that he heard, which man is not permitted to utter, to speak. The things which Paul heard were too terrible, too wonderful to describe with human language, with earthly analogies and metaphors and comparisons. Basically, ordinary words are simply insufficient to express all of God in heaven and all of the pleasure, the paradisical pleasure, the paradise that he saw, that he felt, that he experienced Kent Hughes says, in paradise, Paul heard things that cannot be told, which man cannot utter. What he heard was beyond utterance, not because they were unintelligible or because there was any deficiency in Paul, but because God had forbidden Paul to speak them. They were private. They were given to Paul for his own personal benefit, not to pass on. What an awesome transcendental experience had been granted to the apostle. Now turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. Because I thought, but I know that even though Paul was not allowed to speak it, I know that the people are going to want to hear it. Because we're so curious, right? So I thought, okay, unless I get a vision tonight, or something like that, which don't wait around for that to happen. Where can I give them a vision of heaven? And I thought, you know what? I will take them to the revelator. I will take them to the seer, John. John 21, 15 through 21. Just to give us just a tiny imagination. Let your mind wander. When I read this, I was like, am I reading something out of the Lord of the Rings? No, the Lord of the Rings got everything from here. That's where they got its inspiration. That's where everything, by the way, gets its inspiration in Hollywood. The only place where you're going to see streets of gold being transparent as glass in some Hollywood movie through digital, uh, you know, uh, computerized machinations or whatever. But man has to take it from God. And all he can do is give you a cheap knockoff of the real thing. This is what God's Word says. Read along with me now, 15 to 21. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as the width. And, the height, and, and, and he measured the city with a rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall, 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of this city was adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardinox, the sixth sardius, the seventh uh, chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, uh, chrysoprase, the eleventh, jacinth, 
the twelve, amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Glass, gold like glass. Gold, so shiny. See, I can't even use the right word. Shiny? That's pathetic. I think the angel would be like, don't even try it. Shiny, brilliant, effulgent. I don't know. And this is the word of God, and I still can't even approximate what it's saying here. Transparent gold? Amazing. With regard to the whole subject, therefore, visions and dreams or revelations, I would strongly caution the way we listen to that. It seems like today there is no shortage of people who have had heavenly visits, have gone on heavenly journeys. People seem to uh, uh, go to heaven and hell more often than people in the Bible. I mean, it's just amazing how many people will sell a book where they talk about their visit to heaven. They spent 90 minutes in heaven. Did they have a stopwatch? I mean, they went to hell. They survived? No, friends, I would disavow these claims, and I would settle for what the Word of God teaches that heaven is, heaven is not, that hell is, and hell is not. I mean, just recently, uh, a program with Glenn Beck, he had a lady who was describing her trip to heaven. What's amazing to me is that the, oftentimes you have people on the mainstream media or media in general that go to heaven and get an interview. If they wanted to know what heaven is and what heaven is like, they've had the book for 2,000 years. Why do they need to wait around for some ma and pa experience of heaven? When you have God's word telling you what heaven is. Why do we need Fox News to tell us about heaven? No. Our knowledge of heaven, God will tell us what his heaven is like, or you won't know anything about heaven, period. And so when people come to you and say, well, I had a vision, let me tell you what happened in my vision, or I had a dream, and look at the, I was in heaven, and I was talking to angels, I saw a, a sermon, I, I, I dare almost not call it a sermon, with with a famous faith teacher, Mike Bickle, he's describing a heavenly vision where he interacts with an angel. It's always Michael the archangel, right? It's always him. And in this heavenly vision with this angel talking to him, they're talking back and forth and they're just shooting the breeze and having small talk. He even calls the angel dude. My friends... Please never, ever open yourself up to that sort of nonsense because that's what it is, that sort of nonsense. Look, I've had, I've had dreams that I can tell you of that were just amazing, but I am not prepared to say they were revelatory. That, as Paul says, of the Lord, the Lord revealed them to me. If I have a thought about the Lord right now, whether I'm awake or I'm asleep, that doesn't mean my thoughts are of the Lord. 
revealed directly through divine agency. I don't believe that. And I don't think you should either. You'd be led astray. I would say trust in the only revelation that's inspired, that's trustworthy. Trust in the only revelation that you know for certain is 100% true. I mean, folks, if the Apostle Paul himself, look at the next section here. Paul's next section here, this last qualifier that he gives. He's so hesitant in the way he boasts. This, lad, this, this, this third point, Paul's temperate humility, because that's what it is. If anyone is qualified to speak and to go on and on about visions and revelations, it is the Apostle Paul or an apostle. But Paul is hesitant even to do so. And so why are so many people not hesitant to do so? Why are they so eager to say that their dream or their vision was from God and they write it down and they sell it on Amazon? It's amazing to me. The pride and the arrogance that people have in their subjective experiences. That they're willing to stand up and say, God told me or God showed me. I don't think so. And I personally don't trust anybody that begins a statement with, God told me. I hope you're about to quote a chapter and verse. Because God does not go around and just talking to people. I've had people tell me God talked to them out loud. A lady came to my Bible study once who said, I see God at least once a week. We talk in my living room. She was dead serious. And I, at that point, have a decision to make, folks. Am I going to allow my soul to be influenced by that? Or am I going to have to respectfully disagree with that person? We don't want to get mean or harsh but my, my friends, listen, if somebody comes up to you and tells you that they're having conversations with God and he's appearing to them in their living room, you can disavow that. You can disavow that. Here, Paul's humility is how he ends the, the, the section. He says, on behalf of such a one, I will boast. Meaning, I will boast in the one who was not allowed to express this heavenly vision. But... On my own behalf, I will not boast. He's not going to go in to his own personal ex exercises and experiences and all of that. He says, except, this is the experience that I wish to continually boast about. In regard to my weaknesses, there, that brings in a very uh, familiar theme in the book that Paul has already introduced throughout the letter uh, if you look back in chapter 11, for example, chapter 11, he's, he's already made reference to this very thing in verse 30. If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. That's the emphasis that Paul placed, his service. You know why? Because if Paul got up every Sunday, every time he visited a church, and he began to divulge some experience that he had, there is no way to check the subjective. It's subjective. And there's as much as people would want to listen to Paul's subjective experiences, there is no way to discern. And so Paul would much rather say, look, the evidence of my love for Christ is my labors. The evidence of my spirituality is in my service and in my sacrifice. That is self-evident. Everyone can see that. You can't argue with that. 
He says, for I do not wish to boast. He says, for if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish. He won't do it in a foolish way. He says, for I will be speaking the truth. He says, but I refrain from this, to go on in that type of ecstatic boasting, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. You can embellish his experience. You can add to the revelation or the dream or the vision, but you cannot add to the service. You cannot add to the sacrifice. It stands on its own. This is who he is. And for Paul, and like us, and this is where I thought, you know what? We should take great advantage of this because you and I, especially in this church, hopefully in this church, we're not going to be going around telling each other we've had visions and dreams that you need to listen to that are inspired by God, but contrary to that, we can relate to Paul in his weaknesses, can't we? We can relate to Paul in, in trusting God as he does. Look, look with me at chapter 12, verse 9 through 10, because this is where everything is going to climax. He says, and he said to me, Jesus, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You want to talk to me about an experience you had? Tell me about how you're persevering in the faith. You want to tell me about some emotional experience you went through? Tell me about some great difficulty or some severe distress that God pulled you out of by the strength of His grace. Trust me, that will edify me ten times more than hearing about a vision or a dream or something. And that is beautiful because Paul leaves us with an analogy that we can grab onto. We can relate to him in that. I can't relate to Paul and going to the third heaven or going to paradise. Sorry, I don't expect to go there anytime soon. I don't know about you. But I can expect, like Paul, to begin to go through persecutions, insults, distresses, difficulties for Christ's sake. I do expect that in my Christian life I will experience weakness. And to know that the power of God is at work in your weakness. Notice that Paul does not trace the other way around. He doesn't go the other route. The power of God is, is found in the revelations, in the experience, in the phenomenon. And this is where the charismatic movement has gone all wrong. They want to boast and brag about their charismatic experiences when, when they should be boasting is their weakness. We should be very leery of people that are trying to impress us with their charismatic phenomenon instead of with their Christian maturity. The next time somebody comes up to you and says, you know, this charismatic thing happened to me or that charismatic thing happened to me, ask them, how's your family life? How much doctrine are your children learning? How, do you di how, how disciplined are you in your personal life? How, how disciplined are your finances? You know? That's maturity, not the idea that you spoke in tongues or you prophesied or you had a vision or a dream. I don't believe that to be Christian maturity. Case in point, the Corinthian church. 
wildly charismatic, and shamefully immature. True maturity is found by living a life of godliness, of living a life of principled obedience to the Word of God. That is where maturity comes from. That's where true maturity comes from. And it looks like for me, for Paul, for the Apostle Paul, that's what he really wanted his people to focus on. He wanted them to focus on their everyday life, your everyday character. That's what he cares most about, your humility, your endurance, your perseverance. Rather that you persevere with joy than for you to get emotional one moment in your life or one day of the week, but then have a crummy week because you don't know how to persevere with joy. Instead, you're banking on that one experience that you had that week. That does not need to be the case. God has given us His grace, and His grace is sufficient to strengthen us for all of the weaknesses that we're going to face. And that, I believe, is where Paul would have us to place our boast. How God strengthened us in the midst of our weaknesses. Let's pray. Well, Father...